0: If you were to make a list of model churches, would it include the ancient church of Philadelphia? Perhaps it should. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah shares another special message from his series, The Seven Churches of Revelation, with a look at this church about which Christ had only good things to say. Listen as David introduces today's message, The Faithful Church.
1: You know, over the years, I have preached a number of times on the seven churches of Revelation, and people ask me, what is your favorite church of the seven? And that's not hard to figure out because Philadelphia is, it's the church of opportunity. It's the church of the open door. It's uh, one of the churches about which Jesus has nothing negative to say. And uh, it reminds me of the church that I grew up in. Uh, when my father was a pastor years ago, and missionaries were going out everywhere, and organizations were starting like Youth for Christ, and that was a good time. Uh, I think we might be uh, at the very end of that church age, if we're still in it at all. But the Church of Philadelphia, we're going to talk about it today. And uh, we've called this The Faithful Church. It's Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And don't forget, folks, that during this month, the resource for the month is the book After the Rapture, and I have just two days for you to get that, the way we use resources here at Turning Point. Send a gift of any size and ask for your copy of the book called After the Rapture. It's an incredible tool to use with those who may not know Christ. Here's a book you can read that will tell you what will happen if you miss the rapture. What will happen on earth after all the believers are gone? Intriguing book with a strategy we hope will bring people to Christ. So ask for that book when you send your gift to Turning Point today. Just two days, today and tomorrow, for you to get that book. With that said, let's open our Bibles to the third chapter of Revelation, and let's begin part one of The Faithful Church. I've often said that if I had only one church where I could have been present, I would like to have been present when the letter was opened from the postman of Patmos that was addressed to the church of Philadelphia. To have been in Philadelphia and heard the encouraging words that John wrote would have been an exciting opportunity. Along with the church that received a letter in Smyrna, which was the second of the churches. The letter that was written to the church in Philadelphia was totally positive. All of the other letters, you know, the Lord said, I have this against you and you've done this and you know, here's some good things about you and here's some bad things. But the church in Philadelphia, there's no negative report given. The Lord commends the church we're going to find out why. First of all, the destination of the letter was to the city of Philadelphia, known today as Elicer, A-L-Y-S-R. That's the name of the city today that was once Philadelphia. Philadelphia was named after Pergamus Attalus Philadelphus. That was his name. He built the city. And of course, if you've been around very long, you know that the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. The word Philadelphia occurs in the New Testament seven times besides when it is used to name the city. It's used twice in the book of Revelation for the city of Philadelphia. But the word Philadelphia, brotherly love, also is found seven other times in the Bible. It's made up of two words, phile, which means love, and delphos, which means brother, brother love and so in the New Testament quite often we are encouraged to love as brothers we're encouraged to have brotherly love that's the word Philadelphia used in its normal natural way and the word Philadelphia is also in the name of a city in Asia Minor to which one of the letters was written each of these letters represents a period of church history the letter that was written to the church of philadelphia represents the period from the beginning of the 19th century to the rapture of the church it overlaps with the church of Laodicea at the end of the age and that's important because it was during that time as we study history that we have the great missionary outreach the great revivals that have taken place the expansion of the church worldwide that all has taken place during the Philadelphian history period as we look back over our shoulders And the Bible tells us that the Church of Philadelphia will in many respects still be present in some form when Jesus Christ returns, though it is obvious to us that the Church of Laodicea characterizes the age before Christ comes back. Now the history of the city of Philadelphia is really interesting philadelphia lived longer as a city than any of the other seven cities it was a city often interrupted in its daily routine by earthquakes in fact one earthquake was so great that many people moved out of the city of philadelphia and they never returned so this letter that was written by john while he was in exile on the isle of patmos this seventh letter was addressed to a church that was in the city of philadelphia Now, as you know, if you have your Bibles open to the third chapter of Revelation, in each of the letters, the Lord Jesus gives himself some names. He gives himself some descriptions. It's interesting how he describes himself to the church in Philadelphia. In Revelation 3, 7, we are told, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy and he who is true. First of all, we are told that Jesus is holy he wants the people in philadelphia to be reminded of his holiness as the preeminent god he is the holy one he's the one who embodies the characteristic which god alone possesses he is a holy god he reminds the believers in philadelphia of his holiness such a person alone is qualified to call the christians of philadelphia to life of faith in him we are told in first peter 115 but as he who has called you is holy you also be holy in all of your conduct before someone can require us to live a life of holiness he himself must be holy and so this letter is written by the holy one this letter is written by the holy jesus to the church of philadelphia then notice he's not only holy but he's genuine he's true he who is true and this is a reference to being genuine or having reality or being the real thing the essence of who you claim to be and the Bible says Jesus is not only holy and perfectly righteous without any essence of sin but he's genuine he's real he is the pure living Jesus he's not a hypocrite he's not spinning his holiness he's who he claims to be when you understand who Jesus is and when you understand his character Then you can begin to understand how he is both genuine and holy, and he calls us to such a combination. He wants us to be holy, and he wants us to be real. He wants us to be genuine. You know, you can put on holiness like you spin something, but the Bible says Jesus is not just holy, he's genuinely holy. That's how we should be as well. And then the Bible says he is sovereign. Verse 7 says, He who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now, in the letter that he wrote to the church of Philadelphia, he calls himself the one who has the keys of David. I don't know if you've ever traced that down and asked yourself, why did he call himself that? Well, it goes back to an Old Testament passage, and it relates to a man whose name was Eliakim, who was the son of Hilkiah, and it is recorded that this man carried the keys for the kingdom Isaiah 22:22 says the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open Eliakim had the keys of the kingdom in that particular time and he had the keys to all the treasures of the king and when he opened the door it was open and when he closed the door it was closed And here the writer to the Church of Philadelphia, and this is going to make a lot more sense in a few moments, here the writer is picturing Jesus in the same way. He's saying, just like this man in the Old Testament held the keys for the kingdom of David, and whenever he opened a door, it was open, whenever he closed it, it was closed. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ does. He opens doors, and he closes doors this church the church of philadelphia has been called the church of the open door and we're going to see why in just a moment but we cannot forget that the reason the door was open for the church of philadelphia is because jesus carried the keys and he opens the doors and he closes the doors now we come to the eighth verse of the third chapter and here's the diagnosis that the lord gives of this church and i want to suggest to you and i've kind of taken this apart and put it back together several times that this church is described in four or five different ways that if you were trying to figure out what makes a church the kind of church god wants it to be what are the characteristics of it here's a pretty good run at that you know if we want to be the kind of church that god wants us to be here are some characteristics that we should emulate and i wrote these down three or four different ways, and then I just decided to write them down as plainly as possible, whether they rhyme or whether they're alliterated, no matter what. This is what the Bible says this church was about. First of all, it was a church that had a door of opportunity that was opened by God. Notice what it says in verse 8. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Remember, he holds the keys. The keys that open the door and no one can shut it and shuts the door and no one can open it. And the Lord Jesus presents himself to this church and he says to this church in Philadelphia, you are a church with a great opportunity. You have an open door. Now that's a phrase that we don't use a lot but it's used in the new testament probably more than you realize in fact Paul used this phrase often it was one of his favorite phrases and I'm going to give you some of the verses and you'll see what I mean first of all in first Corinthians chapter 16 we read Paul's words to the Corinthians he says but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great and effective door has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. What is he talking about? He's saying there's a tremendous opportunity for me to serve. He says the door's wide open, and it's exciting. This door that's open, but there's some opposition <laughs> through this open door, nonetheless. In the second letter to the Corinthians, he uses it again. He says in Second Corinthians two twelve. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the lord here paul indicates an open door is simply any opportunity that you have by god's design that he's called you to do to preach the gospel there's one final illustration in the book of colossians where paul uses this again and here he uses this phrase in a prayer asking the colossians to pray for him listen to this prayer Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I also am in chains. Now, folks, what Paul is doing is asking the Colossians to pray for him that when he goes to speak at this particular situation, in this particular time, that the door would be open. In other words, there would be an opening on the part of the people to hear what he had to say, that they wouldn't be standing there with their hands out saying, we don't want to hear this, but God would open this door of opportunity and give them an audience of people who would listen and want to hear what was being said. And you know, it's interesting, as you work in the ministry, and I've been doing this now for four decades, you begin to realize that some doors are open and some aren't. And not long ago I was reading and I came across this statement by Sir William Ramsey who explains the reference to the door as arising for these people out of their geographical location. Why was there such an open door for the church in Philadelphia? Listen to these words. The situation of the city fully explains this saying. Philadelphia was at the upper extremity of a long valley which opened back from the sea. After passing Philadelphia, the road along this valley ascends to the Phrygian land and the great central plateau and the main mass of Asia Minor. This road was the one which led from the harbor of Smyrna to the northeastern parts of Asia Minor and the east in general and one rival to the great route connecting Ephesus to the east and the great Asian trade route of medieval times. Philadelphia, therefore, was the keeper of the gateway to the plateau. In other words, Philadelphia stood at the very edge of this. You couldn't get there unless you came through Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the door that you went through to get to all of these other places. And so, because of that, they had become a very strategic city. You know, there's some places you can't get unless you go through Philadelphia. And because of that, the Lord Jesus said to this church, I've put you in a strategic place. They can't get where they want to go unless they come through here. I've given you a great opportunity, an open door. John Stott, who is the great expositor from England, he really nails it when he says this, Christ has the keys and he opens the doors. (laughs) Then let us not barge our way unceremoniously through doors which are still closed. We must wait for him to make openings for us. Damage is continually being done to the cause of Christ by rude or blatant testimony. It is indeed right to seek to win for Christ, our friends and relatives at home and at work, but we are sometimes in a greater hurry than God is. (laughs) Be patient, pray hard, love much, and wait expectantly for the opportunity of witness. The same applies to our future. More mistakes are probably made by speed than by sloth, by impatience than by patience. God's purposes often ripen slowly. And if the door is shut, don't put your shoulder to it. Wait until Christ takes out the key and unlocks it. (laughs) Boy, have I ever found that to be true. You know i'm built more for speed than i am for comfort and i put my shoulder up against a few doors in my life and i've barged through them only to find on the other side that if i'd have just waited on the lord and his timing things would have been a lot better so the church is commended because it's a church that has been divinely ordained of god and assured by his power and sovereignty that they were going to have an open door of witness That's why this church is such a wonderful picture of that time in church history when so much was happening, when great missionary ventures were starting, when the gospel was being spread, and when evangelism was the focus of the church, and churches were being planted and growing, and they were a focus of what was happening in culture. That was the Philadelphian age, the age of the open door. Notice a very strange word here in the third chapter about another quality of this church is what it says. It says you have an open door, but then it says in verse eight, in the end of the verse, for you have little strength. Now they're commended secondly for a very strange thing. The writer of this letter says, I want to commend you because you don't have much strength. That sounds like a backward compliment, doesn't it? I mean, you don't usually feel complimented if somebody says you have little strength. But here is what the Lord says to this church. You have a great opportunity. You have a great open door. And let me tell you something else that I really like about you as a church. You have little strength. The term in the original language carries the thought of but little strength. In other words, it is not that the church still has a little strength and thus can function to some degree. Rather, what the Lord is saying is it has but little strength in itself so that the source of its power must ultimately depend upon the Lord. In other words, they understand where the strength comes from. This is a church that's got a great and open door, but they also understand that they are not capable, nor do they have the ability to walk through that door if they do it in their own strength. There's a sense of divine humility here. second Corinthians 12, nine says, my strength is made perfect in weakness neither wealth nor influence nor promotional schemes nor the eloquence of the pulpit nor harmonies of musicians can give an effective ministry the lord alone opens the door and the lord alone gives the increase and if you have a little strength it's okay because if you have a little strength you're going to depend on his strength it is when you have big strength and it's yours (laughs) that you're in trouble It's when you're depending on your building and your budget or your staff or all of your ideas or your organizational plan or your outreach or all of the rest and the strength is not in the Lord but it's in you the Bible says the Church of Philadelphia had little strength they were not much if you looked at them from the outside but they were mighty in the hands of God isn't it interesting that we watch church growth and we watch the way churches function and sometimes we see a church just blow up and become huge overnight And then it goes away what happens if you're not careful is if god blesses the church you think it's because of you (laughs) and you forget that god is the sovereign one of the church that he's the one who blesses he's the one who opens the door and shuts the door and oftentimes when god opens the door and we walk through that door if we don't know who we are in christ we begin to think it's about us and that it's all our doing and not his So the second thing that was true of this church, it was a door of opportunity opened by God, a sense of powerlessness without God. Thirdly, it had a commitment to the Word of God. Notice verse 8, you have kept my Word. The church believed the Bible to be authoritative, and they kept the Word of God. When the Word of God is taken out of the center place in the church, everything else goes away. People say, why are marriages in such trouble, just like the world? And the question is very easily answered. When was the last time you heard a pastor teach what the Bible says about what marriage should look like for a Christian? When was the last time the word of God was open and somebody said, thus saith the Lord? So you see, if you take the word of God out of the center, all these other things, they all are a part of the fallout. When the Word of God is gone, you don't have the right attitude toward Israel because you don't know what the Bible says about Israel. You'd be surprised how many people I've run into who didn't even know there was anything in the Bible about how we should treat Israel. (laughs) When you don't know what the Bible says about marriage, it goes south. When you don't know anything about what the Bible says concerning the church, it loses its influence. So the interesting thing about this church that's so critical and I found it to be so important because of what I've been living through The Bible says one of the reasons why this church was blessed of God was they kept the word that means they kept it at the center not only did they keep it in the church they kept it in their own lives they followed the word of God and then there was a deep loyalty to Jesus Christ once again and have not denied my name there was much controversy toward the end of the Philadelphian period about the deity of Christ But the Christians in Philadelphia stood strong in their belief as to who Jesus was They believed that he was God in the flesh the Lord and Savior of mankind They said we believe Jesus Christ is the Lord God and we will not deny his name You remember in the Roman Empire? They were intrigued to go and say Caesar is Lord remember that? They were to go to the altar with a pinch of incense, and they were asked to deny Jesus by saying, Caesar is Lord, and the people in Philadelphia wouldn't do that. They would not deny their Lord. They stood for the Lord. So when you look back at these qualities, what does a church look like if God is blessing it? What does a church look like if it's in the place where God can open the door for many opportunities? Well. First of all, the church realizes that God has opened the door. The church realizes that they are powerless if God doesn't enable them to do what he's called them to do. The church is committed to the word of God and they're loyal to Jesus Christ. If a church will do those four things, they put themselves in a position where God can do great things through that church. Amen. It's been kind of a guide for me over the years that I've pastored, these uh, almost 50 years as a pastor, and uh, you know, God still blesses His church. I believe that. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God keeps His promises. When we follow His instruction, the blessing of God is always waiting for us. Well, friends, I'm running out of time to tell you about this After the Rapture book, I don't know if you've ever wondered what will happen on earth after Christ comes for the church. God gives us plenty of information about that in the Bible. What will life be like on this earth after the rapture? And we came up with this idea because we thought it might shake some people into really thinking about their own personal faith. If I miss the rapture, what will it be like on this earth when the church is gone, when the Holy Spirit has been removed and the restraining influence of righteousness is gone. I want you to have this book. I know you'll read it and you'll share it. And you can have it for a gift of any size this month. Ask for it when you send your gift today. See you tomorrow.
0: For more information on this special message from Dr. Jeremiah's series, The Seven Churches of Revelation, Visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's new book, After the Rapture, An End Times Guide to Survival, which answers the question, what's next? It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in a variety of attractive cover options. Get the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we conclude this special message from the seven churches of Revelation on Turning Point. Are you looking for a simple way to talk with unbelievers about the end times? This month, for a donation of any amount, you can receive Dr. David Jeremiah's newest book, After the Rapture, An End Times Guide to Survival. And for $40 or more, you can receive two copies of this book to share with unsaved friends. Or for a generous donation of $85 or more, you'll also receive an additional booklet and DVD to help you refresh your knowledge of the end times. Go to DavidJeremiah.ca to get your copy today.
1: Someone has humorously observed that if it's Monday and you want to know what God's will is for you for Tuesday, just wait until Wednesday. Well, because God's sovereign will controls everything, what happened yesterday was either His permissive or His declarative will. The truth is, we already know a lot about God's will for us for tomorrow. It's written clearly in the Bible. The moral, ethical, spiritual, and practical instructions He has given for every person And the best way I know to discover God's specific will is to faithfully fulfill His general will. Such faithfulness will lead to greater detail in time. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's general and specific will for your life on Route 66.
0: Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.